Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> oh, thank you. Welcome to all of you that are in the room, to all of you who are online, wherever you are in Chicago, in Florida, in Abidjan, wherever you're tuning in from, welcome to Grace Church. My name is Joel. Some of you don't know me. Uh, my wife and I and our children were part of the Grace family for a number of years. But 10 months ago, we left to return to a place we had served in West Africa to work at the West Africa Theological Seminary and are back for a few weeks. Thank you. <laughs> Yesterday, <clears throat> I walked over to the coffee shop here to get a cup of coffee with my daughter and there was a couple in the coffee shop when we walked in, longtime Grace people, and when they looked at us, she kind of took a second look and she said, are you here? I think so. <laughs> she said, I'm sorry, I, I asked that question in a bad way. She said, I, I'm, I thought you went somewhere. Did you go? Are you back? Where are you? <laughs> I think I can say with almost full assurance this morning that I am here, and it's really good to be here. Matthew 20, welcome to the parables of Jesus. Growing up, I struggled in school, I struggled especially with reading. They didn't have learning disabilities back in that day. I struggled, I think, with what would, people would call dyslexia. Reading was really hard for me. It's not that I didn't like to read, it was just hard. And I think for my dad that was difficult because my dad, he was an avid reader and wanted to pass on that passion to us. So I'm remembering about 11, 12 years old, first day of summer vacation, my dad calls me to his office. I go to see him, and he hands me a paper with a list of 10 books on it. He says, I just want to encourage you to read. So here's the deal. For each book you read, at the end of the book, you come see me. We'll talk about it for a minute, and then I'll give you a dollar. It's called bribery. <laughs> you go, a dollar? That's like nothing. Well, that shows you how old I am. So first book on the list is C.S. Lewis's uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've read the book, delightful story. It should have taken me about two, three days max to read it. It took me about a week and a half. Uh, wonderful story. It's about this kingdom of Narnia and these four English children by some magic walk into a wardrobe and end up in this country of Narnia. And, and in Narnia, the animals speak, and it, it's ruled by Aslan, this lion who is the king in, in Narnia. And in the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the little boys in the story commits treason and the lion ends up laying down his life for the little boy. Beautiful story. Finish the book, go back to my dad's office, sit down. How'd you like the book? Oh, dad, it was great. I mean, this story about this lion and I'm explaining it to him. He says, can, can I just ask you, like, when you were reading it, did it make you think about anything else? I didn't want to say it out loud. I mean, I was thinking about the money, but that... <laughs> so I said, well, no, I don't... He said, well, like, the story, did it remind you of any stories you've heard before? No, no, I, I can't think of any. He said, well, let me help you out. Now, let me put it in a different way. As you read it, did you notice, like, any metaphors in the story? I said, well, you, you tell me what one is, and I'll tell you if I saw any in there. <laughs> My poor dad. I just want to assure you, I've reread the book since, and I get it now. 
C.S. Lewis is one of the foremost Christian apologists of the last two centuries. What is an apologist? An apologist is someone who's given to writing and speaking the fundamental claims of the Christian faith. And he was, an, he was brilliant. A recent uh, survey of Christianity Today readers found that the one book other than the Bible that has most influenced their lives is C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis had this unbelievable gift of being able to marry imagination and reason, to marry logic and story, especially imaginative fiction. This is the way that he said it. He said that reason is the natural organ of truth. Imagination is the organ of meaning. That's really significant because most of us have grown up in a tradition where theology is taught by, by taking ideas, constructing ideas, and surrounding them with logic. That's not a bad thing. It actually gives a foundation for our feet to stand on. But Jesus was not so concerned about us knowing something as he was concerned about us loving something. Welcome to the parables. If I were to ask you this morning, hey, who is the greatest theologian in history? may not know what a theologian is. Well, the theology is the study of God. So who in, in history is, would you say is maybe the greatest theologian? A lot of people would think immediately of the Apostle Paul, and rightly so. Others, depending on the tradition that you come from, maybe Augustine or Jean Calvin or uh, Jonathan Edwards, all great theologians. Strangely, the name that often doesn't make the list is Jesus. It's probably an oxymoron to say that Jesus was a brilliant theologian. But often we don't view him like that because we, we live in the age of reason. And I kind of see Jesus, well, he was a good man. He was a great prophet. He told these stories. No, he was a master theologian. But he wasn't a conceptual theologian. He was a metaphorical one. And that is a language that a lot of us don't speak naturally. Jesus taught most often using parables, and the intent of a parable, it's not just to instruct your understanding. More importantly, it's to incite passion. I love the way that Kenneth Bailey describes a parable. He says it like this. A parable is an extended metaphor, and as such is not a delivery system for an idea, but rather a house into which the reader, the listener, is invited to take up residence. What is he saying? Well, if you get to the end of a parable and all you got is an idea, you missed it. It's actually, Jesus didn't talk about forgiveness because he wanted you to be able to explain forgiveness to somebody. He taught us about forgiveness so that it would just totally surround our lives, that it would become the place that we live. Grace, submission, forgiveness. But the overarching theme in the stories that Jesus told was about life in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God, Jesus came preaching the kingdom. Often when he started a parable, he would say, the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like. What's he talking about? Well, it's not this physical place that you go to. It's actually wherever Jesus reigns. 
So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is his kingdom in heaven? Well, he, he reigns fully. It's beautiful. We're not there yet. But he's come and he's, he's begun a kingdom in this place. And that kingdom shows up wherever people come under his reign. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is what life looks like when Jesus is in charge. And why did he take so much like, effort to teach us about his kingdom? He did that because it's so foreign to us. It just doesn't make sense to us. And so... He spent three years trying to help his disciples get a hold on. So let's jump in. Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. Here's the story. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage, and then he sent them out to work. Nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went out to work in the vineyard. At noon, again at 3 o'clock, he did the exact same thing. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again, and some more people were standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? Well, they replied, nobody has hired us. So the landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed that they would receive more. But they too were given a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. The landowner answered them, friends, I, I, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day at the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my own money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So, the landowner said, those who are last will now be first, and those who are first will be last. You may have heard this story before. Maybe this morning it's the first time you've heard it. Maybe after hearing it again this morning, something inside you feels irritated. You may even be going, that's, that's wrong. Like that, that's, not, that's not right. If that's your response, that's good news. That means you're understanding the story. That is exactly what is supposed to happen. So here's the story. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven, it's like this landowner. The landowner owned a vineyard and tells a story about him inviting these people into the vineyard to work and what happened at the end of the day. Before we look at the context of the story and what it is saying, let me tell you what it's not saying. What this story is not saying, it's not saying that the people who were hired last, they showed the same willingness as everybody else, and God doesn't care about what you do. He just wants you to be willing. Now, that may or may not be true, but that's not what this story is about. 
It's not saying that the people who were last hired, they actually worked so much harder in one hour they got done. That's not what the story's saying. It's not an anti-union speech opposed to seniority systems. It's not advocating communism. Everybody gets the same. It has nothing to do with all of those things. What this story is actually about, it's about the landowner and the extravagant, generous, gracious nature of the landowner. And, and Jesus is trying to help his friends and all of us understand that if you're going to walk in my kingdom, the first day in my kingdom is by pure grace. The second day is by pure grace. The third day is by pure grace. You're getting the message. This kingdom works on grace. This kingdom cannot be brought in by human authority. It cannot be brought in with worldly systems. It only works on kingdom principles. And one of the founding principles of his kingdom is grace. So here's what happens. Jesus is walking with his disciples. On the road, they're met by a rich young man who comes to Jesus, apparently a great guy, probably gave significantly at the synagogue, may have even been the mayor, just this moral good guy. Jesus comes and he's telling these stories of what life would be like, what it could be like if, if anybody would have the courage to let him lead their life. In a sense, what he's saying is, I have this wonderful gift of the kingdom of God, what your life would be like if, if God ran everything. But the problem is that your hands are so full of stuff that you have no room for the kingdom. So you got to lay that stuff down. So the man asks, so what do I do? Jesus simply says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the man walks away profoundly sad because he had a lot of money. Jesus is not being rude. He's not even being antagonistic. He's simply stating a fact that, that this kingdom has come to be our lives. And this man loved his money. And so... If he decided he wanted the kingdom, there was no room in his hands to hold the kingdom. And if he took the kingdom, it would always be a fight. Every time God would say this, it's a discussion. So the disciples hear the story. The man walks away, refuses to put it down. Jesus turns to his disciples and he makes a simple remark. It is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The disciples are troubled. Wait a minute. He was a really good guy. And then the real question comes, who, who can actually be saved then? And, and Jesus says, well, with man it's impossible, but with God anything is possible. And, and Peter says what they're all thinking, well, what about us? We've left everything to follow you. What about us? And Jesus beautifully says, Peter, don't worry. Nobody will ever give up anything for me in my kingdom that they won't be rewarded a thousand times over. Just trust me. Peter is learning about the generosity and the grace of the landowner. This kingdom works 
by grace. So Jesus tells this story. Again, it's not really about the workers. It's about the landowner. And it's saying that the landowner is trustworthy. So in this story, as in, in parables, they're not like these direct allegories where every little thing connects, but there's things that you see that are just really clear in the story. And the first thing you see is that the landowner is God. He owns everything. The workers in the story are us. And the work that is entrusted to the workers in the vineyard is not to plant seeds. It's to, to bring the kingdom of God, to, to shine light on his glory, to to do all that we can to, to see that the message gets out. And the field in the story is actually the world. So at the end of the story, it's wage time. But the wages in the story are not really a salary. They're the reward of God. And we'll, we'll look at that in a few minutes. So the first people that heard this story, they would have totally gotten the story. There's parts of the story that they don't make sense in our culture. But in their culture, in the marketplace, there was always a place where day workers would go. And so they understood exactly what Jesus was talking about, literally. One of the key lines in the story is the, the statement that the landowner makes to all the people that come after the first people that came in the morning. When he invites them into the field, he simply says to them, I will give you what is due. And so they don't negotiate, they just trust. And in the story, that's a really important piece. So now unfolds in this little story this beautiful picture of the grace of God. Grace is always a gift. And, and it, it can't be earned, can't be merited, can't be bought, can't be negotiated. It can only be received. The grace of God. It excludes negotiation. A lot of us, however, have learned to approach God with a negotiator mentality. Come to God and, you know, God, if you just, like, fix my marriage, if you would, if you would just give us a child, if you would just heal my child, this job that I've been trying to get for five years, if you would just open that door for me, if you, and then if you do that, God, I will. I know no one in this room has ever done that before, but it does happen to some people. But that's a really distorted image of God, as though he's this tiny little God that we can manipulate. But here's the problem with negotiating with God. We don't actually have anything that he needs. We, we don't really have any leverage to negotiate. What exactly is it that you're going to give him and what do you actually have that he didn't already give to you? Really, in the story, the wage that the landowner gives. It's not a payment. It's not a trade. He, he gives it because of who he is. So in the story, the landowner, he goes early in the morning, and then he goes back at 9, and then he goes back at 3, and then he goes back at 5. Why? Like if he needed the labor, they were all there in the morning, why didn't he just take them? Well, the reason is because he's not hiring them because he needs them. 
He's hiring them for them so that they could go home at the end of the day with food for their family. Really significant in the story for a first century person. In their understanding of the story, the landowner would have never been the one who went to the market. It would have always been his manager. But in this story, it's the landowner who goes to find the workers for the vineyard. It's this beautiful picture of, of God. He didn't send someone to find us. He came himself to give himself for us. So in the story, God employs those that come to work in the vineyard in the same way for us. He invites us to share in the bringing of his kingdom, but he does it to fill a hole in us, not a need that he has. God's grace is just everywhere in our lives. We receive God's gift and his grace in creation. The, the beauty that's around us, it, it's on every side. It, it's there for our good, but it's also there for our delight. If you've been watching the news, uh, NASA recently, I probably need to be careful saying this because I know we have some rocket scientists among us, but this new telescope that they have, the James Webb Telescope, has revealed things that we've never seen before. And when you look at the images, it really is extraordinary. But guess what? Long before NASA ever found that stuff, it was already there. Because God put it there. And even behind there, there's galaxies and millions of stars that we've never seen before. Because that's how he is. But he doesn't just grace us with creation, he graces us by sustaining us. Breath and food. Paul says that every cell of our body is held together by his hand. It's, it's a gift. It's grace. But beyond that, the Bible tells us that in the beginning we're separated from him. And there's nothing that we can do to fix the separation. And so he himself comes into the story and makes a way to restore us, our Savior. And he offers himself. Eternal life. No one can give you eternal life. No bank, no job, no degree. It's a gift. Why does God give so generously and so graciously? Because that's who he is. And that's what the story is about. It's about the grace of the landowner. But here comes the punchline. There's this beautiful picture of God's grace. Opposing that picture is the picture of how hard it is for all of us to embrace that grace, the absence often of grace. So this is what happens. In the story, in truth, no one in this story is underpaid. The complaint is from those who had been justly paid but were offended by the grace of the landowner. Here's the punchline. The end of the day comes. The landowner asked the foreman to give to each one their wage for the day. So the first ones he calls are not the ones that came first. It's the ones that came last, the, the, the five o'clockers that only worked one hour. And they come and he gives them a day's wage, a denarius. And then the second group comes, the 3 p.m.ers, and he gives them a denarius, a whole day's wage. And the people who are the first ones are sitting there going, wow, 
Can't wait to see what he's going to give us. This is going to be great. And their turn comes. And they come. And they get one denarius. A day's wage. The text says that they're angry. And they call a press conference. And they start tweeting. <laughs> start calling lawyers. We have been cheated. And the landowner says, well, wait, you got exactly what was promised. Very significant that in the story, in fact, he very intentionally says this, that he asked the foreman to start with the people who came last. Because in, in normal times in that culture, it would have been the opposite. If that would have happened, the people that came first would have come and they would have got their daily wage and they would have left, end of story. They wouldn't have even known all this happened. But very intentionally in the story, he wants, the landowner wants them to know what is done. He wants to reveal their hearts in the same way that he wants to reveal our hearts and how difficult grace is for us sometimes. In truth, most of us don't have a problem with God's grace and generosity. We love it. The problem comes when he wants to extend his grace to, are you kidding me? Him? Like I've been in this kingdom for years. I've given myself. He gets to come in. He doesn't even know how to vote. Did I just say that? I'm, I'm, we're not going there. But that's how ridiculous it is. We can withhold God's grace from people for the stupidest thing. It's in all of us. And in this story, he's revealing the grace of the Father and inviting us into the dance. The end of the story is about learning to trust the generous king. That's the response for all of us. You see, God's kingdom, it just doesn't look like the kingdoms that we know. The way that you get a kingdom to work is you need resources, you need money, you need power. The way the kingdom of Jesus works is with blessing and forgiveness and grace. And he's inviting us to walk into it. It's not always easy to trust in the middle of the story. Maybe you hear a story of God granting healing to someone and you hear the story and so you try out the formula, and maybe if I do that, maybe he'll heal me. And maybe he will, but maybe he won't. Or you hear of somebody not having a job, and they cry out to God, and God intervenes, and it encourages us to cry out to God and act. And you know what? He might answer like we would like, but he might not. And that's the point, that the gift is not out here. The gift of grace is always God himself. And he wants us to learn to receive it. And the more you receive it, the more it pours through. Receiving grace is not an easy thing. We sign up for ministry or marriage or mission, sign up for God's kingdom, 
The story is telling us there's no guarantee. Signing up for Jesus' kingdom doesn't give a guarantee that, that all my children are going to do really well in school or they're always going to be in good health. or no guarantee on any of that. There's only one guarantee in the kingdom, and that's the promise of the king that he will be with us to the end of the age, and his grace will walk with us every step of the way. My dad's mom, my grandma, loved Jesus. She was not always an easy person to be around. When grandma was coming to visit, I mean, I was just a kid. I didn't understand all this. I just knew that there was tension in the house. My parents, it just, it just wasn't always fun. She was a, a dorm parent at a military boys' school, and she would come and She'd walk into your bedroom in the morning and start yelling at my parents like, you call yourself parents, this kid doesn't even know how to make his bed. And she was just great to have around. So, <laughs> she loved Jesus. She had more trouble with people. But something happened like just a couple years before she died and, and the best way that I can describe what happened is she just became this gracious literally delightful person. I was just a kid. I thought, well, maybe that's what happens to old people. But I'm one of them now, and it's just not like an automatic thing. After her funeral, I was talking to my dad about it one day. I, I never knew the story, and he said, yeah, a couple years before Grandma died, she went to a summer camp, and the message the whole week was about the grace of God. Grandma loved Jesus. She was early in her faith. She thought that the way she would show her love to Jesus is sign up to be a missionary. But it never happened. And she was just sure that even if God loved her, he was probably really disappointed. For the first time in her life, she saw the delight in the eyes of her heavenly father that his grace was there for her every day. Just, just receive it. And it, it's life changing. So, if there's no guarantees, why would anybody do it? Well, because you trust the generosity of the landowner. And you trust his promise that he'll be with us. And what, what do you get out of it? You get God. You don't have to do life alone. You walk in his kingdom and he's with you and his family is with you and he, he always responds with himself. So, the end of the story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the king, because of the, the death sentence on this little boy, decides to step in and, and die in his place. A brutal death. And what the evil in the kingdom did not know was that in the deeper magic of the kingdom, when you take the life of somebody who didn't deserve to die, they won't stay dead. And so the, the, the lion comes back to life. Can you imagine the scene? This little boy who, who knew that what he did brought the death and suffering of the king 
what would it be like now when he has to stand in the presence of the king? You know what the king does? The king makes him a knight and prepares a feast. That's what the grace of God looks like. I think sometimes that we think that, that we're honoring God by not receiving his grace. Like, seriously, I, God, I just don't deserve your grace. Of course you don't. Like, get over yourself. You didn't deserve his grace yesterday. You don't deserve it today. And you won't deserve it tomorrow. But he's waiting to give it to you if you'll just receive it. Jesus, the way of grace is foreign to us. Can it really be that good? You really... Do you really come to us and allow us to come to you over and over again and, and extend grace and forgiveness? It's hard for us to believe. But I ask you this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would open the heavens and that you would pour out your grace in this place. There's, there's lots of people in this room this morning who just need a drink of your grace to be reminded that the same grace that found them waits for them every day, waits for all of us. How could we ever thank you? Pour out your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.